Yes, we're open. Living Faith with Needham UCC, a sermon podcast from the Congregational Church of Needham United Church of Christ, where no matter who you are or where you are on life's journey, you're invited and welcome. This sermon for Sunday, April 17th, 2022, Easter Sunday, is entitled, While It Was Still Dark. It's a reflection on a reading from the Gospel according to John, chapter 20, verses 1 through 18. If you enjoy this podcast and would like to find out more about our open and affirming ministries at the Congregational Church of Needham, United Church of Christ, simply head over to our website, www.needhamucc.org. Thank you. As I mentioned, it has been a good long time since I was ordained, 22 years or so, but I still remember that process, and I remember the fear and trepidation with which I entered into it, and especially as I was rounding what I hoped would be that final curve and came to my examination for ordination, what we in the United Church of Christ call an ecclesiastical conference, which is a really fancy way of saying, let's get together and ask really hard questions. And in my ecclesiastical council, among so many questions, there was this one that I still remember, especially on Easter Sundays. An elder of the church, so many years my senior in years and in faith, leaned in and asked in a still small voice. Now remember, this was Texas. So, John, I wonder... If you were there on Easter morning and you happened to be equipped with a Polaroid camera, could you take a picture of the resurrection? The answer leapt to my lips, so I know it wasn't mine. And I said, absolutely. If my camera was equipped with the lens of faith. Oh, I love that answer. That was an answer designed to get me ordained. But now, after these years, not because I am so worn down, but because I have lived closer to life than I ever could have imagined. That is part of the privilege and the burden of this call. Living close to my own life, of course, but also to the lives of the congregations that I have served. After all of these years, I'd like to think that I would have the courage of my convictions and I would say, no. It would have been too dark. Because everybody knows resurrection takes place in the dark. And by everybody, of course, I mean Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, all four gospel writers, none of whom show us the resurrection itself. Have you noticed that? Conspicuous by its absence. They show us only the aftermath and others' reaction 
to it. Which scene even, the gospel writer of the gospel according to John, sets explicitly in the dark. Early on the first day of the week, while it was still dark. Because remember, technically, 1 a.m., 2 a.m., 3 a.m. is the morning while it is still dark. So early on that first day of the week, while it was still dark, Mary of Magdala came to the tomb and found the stone already rolled away. I add that already for emphasis, but the tradition is clear. Whatever had happened, whatever had been done, had been done in the dark. And at first, here in John's version, Mary doesn't know what that is. Mary doesn't know what has happened at first. Actually, at first, second, and third, she sees the stone rolled away and wonders what they have done to Jesus's body. The same they, the Sanhedrin, the religious leaders of the day who handed Jesus over to the Romans to be executed. What further indignities have they heaped upon my Lord, even in death? In her confusion and rage, she races home to tell the other disciples who come back with her to the tomb to verify that it is indeed empty and the grave clothes oddly set neatly aside. Then alone again in the morning dark of the cemetery garden with her grief, Mary bends down to get a better look into the tomb and sees someone, two someones, sitting there in the cramped dark. Oblivious to how they might have gotten there, when they ask her why she is weeping, Mary says again, aloud this time, they have taken away my Lord, and I do not know where they have laid him. Again, no resurrection. Then having turned away, Mary is confronted with Jesus himself, but her heart and mind remain clouded and dark. She thinks him to be the gardener, the cemetery attendant, so she begs him to tell her what's happened. And it's only then when he speaks her name that the light dawns. This is Jesus. He is not dead. He is alive. He has been raised off screen somewhere in the dark. In a lot of churches, including quite often ours, Easter, this feast of the resurrection, is a celebration of light. Preachers and little children together pray for a sunshiny Easter morning, the former so the pews can be full, the latter so they can be sure of hunting Easter eggs on the lawn later. Light streaming in through the windows bounces off the brass of the trumpets so often brought in for the special occasion and it spotlights the spring colors of new Easter outfits. 
a riot of flowers brightens the chancel, the altar, the cross, sometimes hats. And that's a fine, fine thing indeed. In a world terrified of darkness and addicted to light at all costs, it's certainly understandable. And not to put too fine a point on it, but a bright Easter morning makes the resurrection an easier sell. Surely the Son of God rose just as the sun comes up in the morning, just as the world turns toward the sun in springtime. Just trust and believe like Easter is the most natural thing in the world. Which it isn't. Easter isn't natural. Resurrection isn't natural. And it isn't expected, except with the benefit of nearly 2,000 years of hindsight. And it doesn't happen in the bright light of day when our vision is clear and everything is sharp and certain. Theologian Barbara Brown Taylor, author of our Lenten book study, Learning to Walk in the Dark, because sometimes God shows up at night, says if resurrection happened in a cave, it happened in complete silence, in absolute darkness, with the smell of damp stone and dug earth. Resurrection happens in the dark. And that's the point. Because resurrection is a mystery. Not a mystery in the Sherlock Holmes Scooby-Doo sense of a mystery. A question to be solved in 30 minutes minus commercial interruptions. But a real mystery that calls everything else into question calls us into question and our world and our ways, our triumphs and our losses. If daytime and light comes with certainty and a certain seeing is believing mindset, darkness brings confusion and doubt. And I am standing here on this Easter morning to tell you that's a blessing. That Darkness of the tomb, of the morning while it's still dark. That darkness, that wakefulness in the dark at 2 and 3 and 4 a.m., that confusion, that doubt, that is a good thing. Not an easy thing. Not a nice thing. But a good thing. That's holy. That's a gift. Because I believe with all of my heart that contrary to nearly every other public opinion that what the world needs now is more doubt. Hear me out. What is the one word that we have heard used over and over and over again to describe so many events of, oh, I don't know, let's say the past two years. Unprecedented. In our public lives together through the pandemic, through government gridlock and open insurrection, 
through the wars, not just in Ukraine, but in other places around the world, less comfortable for us. Through wars on our own streets, mass shootings and the killings of unarmed black and brown folks at the hands of police and the murders of trans women of color. Through the systematic dismantling of voter rights for communities of color, through the denial of entry to immigrants browner than Ukrainians, fleeing violence in their home countries and the caging of their children, through the orchestrated attacks on reproductive freedom and queer people, especially now children. In Texas, yes. In Florida, yes. In Kentucky, yes. In Oklahoma, yes. In Alabama, yes. But in Pennsylvania, yes. And New Hampshire, yes. Through the rising storm, literally, of environmental devastation and climate change. How many times have we heard, how many times have we been the ones saying that we are living through unprecedented times? Who could have imagined that this is where we would be in 2022? Friends, I hate to be the one to break it to you, but lots of people way more than you might imagine. Certainly all the folks on the receiving end of this tide of sin and evil and suffering. None of which is new. There are plenty of painful precedents for all of this, even if it is happening faster and more furiously than ever. We've not changed so much has gotten more efficient. We can oppress more people with less effort than ever. And of course, in our private lives, in our intimate relationships, our families and friendships, human beings are going to human being. We're as harmful and hurtful as ever. I'll let you fill in your own blanks there. How much time do you need? It's not that we don't also have plenty of reasons to rejoice. We do. We can be kind and gracious and brave and open-hearted in every area of our lives. And thank God for it. Amen. It's just that, well, all of that other shouldn't really come as a surprise to any clear-eyed observer of our world. Not just there and then, but here and now. Nothing has ever been more predictable, more certain than Good Friday and the cross. Throughout the Gospels, Jesus kept telling his disciples it was going to happen. He said, we're going up to Jerusalem and the son of man will be betrayed to the chief priests and the teachers of the law. They will condemn him to death and turn him over to the Gentiles to be mocked and flogged and crucified. And he wasn't looking into the future with his magic Messiah vision. He was looking at the bodies hanging on the crosses on the road along the way. This sort of suffering is so 
certain, so commonplace, so expected that we have made it an essential part of the process of transformation somehow in our theologies and our resurrection as we imagine it in our world and in our churches. We've invented a whole category called sanctified suffering, good suffering, if you will, that leads certainly, inevitably, or so we tell ourselves, to some greater good, even maybe the greatest good of Jesus's resurrection. The language of our faith is full of this idea. Well, of course, Jesus had to die. God sent him to die horribly on the cross in order that we may have eternal life. In fact, the more suffering for him, the better for us. That's just the way it works. It's a mystery. But friends, that's not a mystery. That's a cop-out. That's a misunderstanding at best, and at worst, a cover story for the worst in us. An all-too-commonplace misinterpretation that calls evil good and the cross beautiful. And even in an odd way, makes Judas out to be the hero of the piece. It's that very assumption that the Apostle Paul challenges in his letter to the Romans when he asks rhetorically, if God responds to our sin with grace, then why don't we sin more so we get more grace? And when he also then answers emphatically, ah, hell no. I'm paraphrasing. Now, the suffering of the Good Friday cross is predictable, certain, sure, 24-7, 365. The only place Good Friday leads inevitably to Easter and suffering to resurrection and redemption is on the church calendar. At its very heart, Easter, the real Easter, and not just the holiday. At its heart, Easter remains a mystery because there is quite literally a hole in the middle of it, a tomb. Resurrection, when it happens, if it happens, happens in the dark, in the great cloud of unknowing beyond sight and sense and certainty. Darkness challenges all our expectations. It strips us of all our usual tools and tales that help us make sense of the world around us, especially our suffering and the suffering of others. Darkness strips them away and makes us face this reality naked as the day we were born, as the day we die, as Jesus's naked body battered and bruised, lying in the darkness of the tomb. Darkness makes us helpless, hopeless. Darkness makes us doubt everything we know. And here's my point. In a world where the glare of artificial light is overwhelming, where certainty has been weaponized and suffering is as sure as death and taxes, darkness is a gift. Doubt is a gift. Professor James Cone 
groundbreaking African-American theologian and author of The Cross and the Lynching Tree, which was shocking when it came out in 2011 and remains so today, I should say, shocking to white folks. He wrote about the best possible relationship between suffering and doubt this way. Suffering naturally gives rise to doubt. How can one believe in God in the face of such horrendous suffering as slavery, segregation, and the lynching tree? Under these circumstances, doubt is not a denial, but an integral part of faith. It keeps faith from being sure of itself. It keeps faith from being sure of itself. And I want to pause a moment and ask you, what are you so sure of that is hindering the work of the gospel in the world? Can you doubt for the sake of a God larger than any God you've ever heard of before? Can you doubt that the world has to operate this way? Can you Doubt that so many people have to suffer. Suffer. Can you doubt that you have to suffer? Can you doubt that you are as bad as you have been led to believe? Can you doubt that you are not as good as you have led, been led to believe? Doubt keeps faith from being sure of itself. Cohen says. But doubt is not the final word. The final word is faith giving rise to hope. I want to take that just a step further and say that in a world of such dreadful certainty, doubt and darkness and deconstruction are our only hope. Because darkness is necessary for real life. Not this glaring, neon, artificial, planned community, indoor, climate-controlled life we call life now, but real life, abundant life that God intends for us. That life, that new life starts in the dark. Whether it is the seed planted in the ground, a baby in the womb, or Jesus in the tomb. Darkness is where all of our expectations, good and bad, go to die. Darkness is where all of the pieces of our lives get reshuffled, reformed, and reborn. The dark of the cocoon is not a timeout for the caterpillar. It is where everything it ever knew and ever was, even its very body, is broken down completely and transformed into something unimaginable. No wonder Mary didn't recognize the miracle of resurrection at first, second, or third sight. Even when the resurrected Jesus was standing right there in front of her eyes as plain as day. Darkness is the source of every surprise that really is a surprise. Every resurrection that's not simply a rehashing of everything that's come before, simply rearranging the deck chairs on the Titanic, 
but real resurrection to real life, abundant life, a way of life that is honest to God, shockingly, wonderfully, frighteningly new. And like it or not, as painful as that process may be, as scary as the dark actually is, that's exactly what we need. That newness, that's what our world needs so desperately these days. Not a return to normalcy as we've known it in the past, but a new normal, a better normal, better for all the other people and the pieces of ourselves for whom our old, comfortable, predictable normal has been a nightmare up to now. As the gospel writers knew and tried to tell us that sort of newness That sort of real Easter resurrection only begins while it is still dark. So the question for us this Easter morning is this. Are we willing to spend time in the dark? Not just to endure it until the lights come on again, but really spend time with the dark. Really get to know it and get to know ourselves in it. Become acquainted with all of the good and the bad within and around us in the hope, not the certainty, but just the hope that when day finally does break, if it breaks, the old world and all our old ways will be broken too, dead and gone in something unrecognizably, unspeakably new and beautiful will be born. Lord, let it be, and let it begin with me. So, beloved, if you've heard the word of God preached here today, remember to give all honor and glory to our one God, creator, Christ, and Holy Spirit. Amen.